Father, thank you so much for all that you've given us this morning. New mercies, life and breath, and life in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that um, we this morning would make much of you and much of him, that we uh, would be swept into John's vision, and we would see and behold the majesty of God, and in his surpassing worth, we would find our worth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn to Revelation 5, five or uh, you could just grab one of the sheets. Revelation 5. And to begin, I just want to ask this question. What are you worth? What are you worth? Now, how you answer that question reveals a lot about how you judge worth. Immediately, a lot of you probably were thinking, well, how much am I worth money-wise, right? How much do I have? Others of you might be thinking, well, here's how successful I am or what I can offer. We constantly live in a world that is measuring and valuing worth, not just financially or monetarily, uh, but worth in terms of our value, our success, our ability. And how we measure that worth is really, really telling. 1969, a uh, psychologist by the name of Nathaniel Brandon wrote a paper that would become a, a watershed moment in psychology and later pop psychology. And the paper was entitled, The Psychology of Self-Esteem. And in that paper, he argued that feelings of self-esteem were the key to success in life. In other words, you do not have self-esteem after being successful. No, in order to be successful, you must first have self-esteem. And what that did was began, it began a movement, the self-worth movement. And in that movement, it's where uh, it affected our parenting. And so we basically bought into this idea that we need to convey uh, esteem and worth onto our children. And we need to do that in order to help them to be successful. So we invented games, games that were fun for kids but had no winners and no losers. This is why today so often there's a trophy for everything uh, in kids' sports, right? That we, we don't want our kids to fail. Now the problem with this is that it's just not true. <laughs> that, that we face failure all the time and especially as adults. And I would link in this to, I mean, so many things, but if you think about what we're seeing in delayed adolescence now, this, this extreme fear of adulthood, literally adult, our young adults joke about this all the time in our church. It's become a verb, adult. I have to adult today. It's really hard to adult. And, but I think what they mean by that is, I have to face my failure. And I don't want to do that. I've never had to do that before. That if we're honest, we recognize, listen, we are broken and we live in a broken world, but we don't like that idea. I, I mean, listen, this, it's not just the way we parent. It doesn't just affect our kids. It affects us as well. And, and the best example I can think of is, makes fun of this. And I'd call it the Stuart Smalley effect. Does everyone know Stuart Smalley? Right, the SNL character looking himself in the mirror, and what does he say? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And he's just looking in the mirror, just telling himself this over and over again. Why? Because deep down, if you know the character, 
and it's not this existential and deep, but it kind of is. He knows he's not. He knows he's absolutely is not. Why do we do this? Because we want to be worthy. We want worth. We want value. We want esteem, not only in our own eyes, but in the eyes of others. The problem with this is it's just not accurate. It's not an accurate way to look at yourself or to look at the world. John Calvin and his institutes, his big magnum opus, the very first few lines, he introduces an idea called double knowledge. And this is what he meant by it, that you cannot truly know yourself unless you know God. You cannot truly know God unless you know yourself. To put it another way, the bigger that God is to you, the smaller you will be. The smaller that you are, the bigger God is to you. And this is how he put it. I want you to listen. This is great. He says, It is evident that man never attains a true self-knowledge until he contemplates the face of God. Okay? You can't really know who you are. You can't know yourself unless you contemplate the face of God. But this is what he goes on. He says, Hence, the dread and amazement with which Scripture uniformly relates. Holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. In other words, throughout Scripture, holy men, men who were devout, men who loved God, when they stood in the presence of God, they were completely struck over with fear and awe. And he goes on, this is what that looks like. When we see those who previously stood firm and secure, now so quaking with terror, that the fear of death takes hold of them, they are in a manner swallowed up and annihilated. The inference to be drawn is that men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Okay, I know it's early for a lot of big words. So I'm going to read it again because this is so good. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they've contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Our problem with worth is that we are trying to ascribe worth to ourselves. We are facing something that is not just false, but it's deeply destructive who God is in our eyes and the world around us. And what we see in the book of Revelation is a picture, a vision of the majesty and the grandeur of God. And it's in His majesty and His surpassing worth that we at once find that we are unworthy, unworthy to be in His presence. But we also learn that it's in His worth that we are actually called worthy. And we're going to look at this in four ways this morning. The first is this. In the presence of God, the majesty of God, we are unworthy in our sin. We are unworthy in our sin. And we're going to see this in Revelation 5, verse 1. John says, Then I saw, so he's following the vision, right? Christ seated on the throne. Among the churches, these golden lampstands, now he's seated on the throne. And, I, and now as he's seated on the throne, he sees Christ. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll 
written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Okay, so real quickly, the picture is Jesus Christ sitting on a throne. Notice that he says that the scroll is in his hand. He's not holding it like this, grabbing it. It's in his hand like this, open palm. Why? Because he's offering it. He's saying, here, come and take it. Come and take the scroll. So it's in his hand, open palm like this. And it's written. How is it written? On the front and on the back. That's significant as well. Scrolls in those days, parchment, had one side that was easy to write on. The texture would make it very easier. The back, though, was not a great surface to write on. Uh, think of it in terms of you have a glossy side and a non-glossy side. You're always going to write on the non-glossy side unless you run out of room. And then only then are you going to actually write on the glossy side. You know it's going to smudge, but listen, you just need the room. That's what's going on here. So it's an important detail because what he's saying is, listen, there is so much in the scroll that we ran out of room. So it had to be written on both sides. It's completely filled to the brim. That this scroll is so full, it is written on both the front and the back. And there's another detail that's important. There are seven seals. Now, we've already talked about the number seven in this study, right? This, a symbol of universality, a symbol of completeness, perfection. Now, the way I want you to, there's a lot of ways that you can think about this. And this is true for a lot of Revelation, especially now as we get into the visions. There's a lot of ways you could take this. But the way I like to think about these seven seals is it's not just a scroll that's rolled up and there's seven seals on the outside of it. But it's actually sealed seven times in succession. So there's seven sections of the scroll. And after each section, there's a new seal. So that after you open each seal, a new section is revealed. And I believe that because of where we're going. We're not going to get it today. We'll get it to next week. But as each seal is opened, a new revelation comes. All right? So the question that you should all be asking, and Cub just asked me this morning, what's in the scroll? <laughs> what actually is in the scroll. And it's it doesn't completely tell us, at least not verbatim. Uh, it's not obvious. And, and so for that reason, there's been a lot of debate. What's in the scroll? Uh, a, a, there's a lot of good options. A good option might be, well, it could be the book of life, right? The name's written in the book of life. Perhaps that's true. Um, it could be uh, Revelation itself. Others have thought that, that it is the Revelation, right? It is John's Revelation written down in the scroll. That's what it is. I tend to fall into a camp that says what it is, is um, it is human destiny. It is, a, it is written down the end of all things. It's the end of the world. Uh, every judgment, everything that's going to fall on us, and the redemption and consummation of all things. In other words, it is what is to come. In Revelation 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way to 21. That as each seal is broken, a new picture of what is to come to us as humanity is going to be not just talked about and revealed, but it's going to be ushered out. It's going to happen. That's what's in the scroll. Again, a lot of different ways to think about it. That's what I think. So here's the scroll. Seven seals written on both sides. It is full to the brim. Verse 2, John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So here is Christ holding out the scroll. Take it. 
And an angel is saying, who is worthy to now open the seals, right? To begin the consummation of all things. To usher in God's redemptive and judgment on the whole world. Who's worthy to do that? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. In other words, there is absolutely no one who is worthy to open the scroll. And what is John's response? What does he do? He weeps. He weeps. Why does he weep? I think he weeps for two reasons. He weeps because he is faced with his own unworthiness. He weeps because he's faced with the unworthiness of all of humanity. And he weeps because the scroll, which contains the end of all things, the consummation, Christ's return, is not being opened. It's not being opened because we are unworthy. It's a great picture Standing in the presence of the throne room of Christ himself, we are unworthy. We see this picture, as Calvin said, throughout Scripture. Think of Isaiah. Isaiah 6. Isaiah says he is swept up into the throne room of God. He sees angels around the throne of Christ, singing together, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He says, the foundations shook the voice of him who called, and the house is filled with smoke. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. As Calvin said, whenever men who were holy, who knew deeply the things of God, who even lived, perhaps even more holy than we, whenever they were in the presence of God, all they could do is to fall on their face and recognize we are not holy. We are unworthy. This is Paul in Romans 3, perhaps you know it well, talking about who we really are in comparison to who God is. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned together. They have become worthless. Listen to that. We have become worthless. We are unworthy. We are unworthy. No one does good, not even one. So let me ask the question again, are you worthy? And how do you measure that worth? Because in a culture that thrives on self-worth, right, becoming a self-made man, you're going to probably value that worth based on your own terms or the terms of people around you. Do you have a vision of the majesty of God that causes you to see yourself in an accurate light? That if you were swept up, I think this is true. I think deep down we all rec- if we truly were in the presence of God, I don't think any one of us would just stand there like this and say, I'm worthy. <laughs> I know that's true. So that's not our problem. Not, our problem is not always just a pride issue where we, we really think if we were in the presence of God, that we would say, listen, I've got it all together. No, it's that we're not in the presence of God. 
that we live lives apart from the presence of the majesty of God. And for that reason, we're constantly evaluating ourselves on our own terms and our own sense of worth. When we are in the majesty of God, we see we are not worthy. But here's what's amazing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though we are unworthy, God in his infinite and surpassing worth has invited you into the throne room. He's invited you to feast at his table. And what we're about to see is that the more that we value and consider God worthy, the more worthy we actually become. Not because of us, but because of who he is. All right, so three ways real quick that I want you to see that Christ is worthy and why this makes us worthy ultimately, once and for all. All right, so the first way that we are worthy or that Christ is worthy and makes us worthy is this. Jesus Christ, he is worthy as our king. Think about worth value. What do you consider valuable? Do you consider the kingship and authority of Jesus Christ valuable to you? We'll talk about that at our tables. Verse 5. Verse 5, this is what John sees. He says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. It's all right, he's, he's weeping. No one is worthy to open a scroll. One of the elders comes to him and says, Weep no more, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered so he can, in other words, so he is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. All right, so this angel says, hey, there's the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, the root of Jesse. He alone is worthy to open the seals. Weep no more. First, we see Jesus Christ, he's a lion, right? He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, this is a title, and it's fairly unique to the book of Revelation, but we see language like this even in, as early as Genesis. Let me just read this to you, Genesis 49. Hey, this is, if you're familiar with the passage, this is Jacob, father of the 12 tribes. And, and at the end of Genesis, he gives a blessing to each of the 12 tribes. So this is Jacob's blessing to the tribe of Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on your neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Listen to that kind of language, right? Very majestic, very kingly. And he says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He has stooped down, crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. And then he says, the scepter, right? A king's scepter shall not depart from Judah. So Jesus Christ called the lion of the tribe of Judah. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Right? The scepter is not going to depart from him. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. He is the lion. He's also called a root, the root of Jesse. Now, uh, every single Advent at Christmas, we sing about the root of Jesse. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. What is that? Well, a root was like a branch, so think about like a family line. All that's talking about is Jesus comes from Jesse, right? He is a root, a family line coming from Jesse. That's important. Why? Because of Isaiah 11, prophecy, where Isaiah prophesies that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit, 
And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel, of might, a spirit of knowledge, fear of the Lord. With righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. So we have these prophecies being referenced all the way at the end of all things in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ, King of Kings, right? A lion from the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, Judge and Ruler of all things. He is the root of Jesse, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He is King. He has authority. He has authority over you. He has authority over the angels. He has authority over the scroll. The scroll that contains our destiny. The end. He is in charge. He is Lord. The question is, how do you see him? Do you see him as your king? What allegiance do you daily pay homage to? Does your life reflect an allegiance to the kingdom and authority of Jesus Christ or an allegiance to some other kingdom? That's an important question. As a church, we say we exist to extend the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ to Dallas and the world. What does that mean? It means we believe that Christ is in charge. He is authority over all things, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we exist to see his kingship, his reign, expand, extend right here in our own city and all, all, all over the world. Whose kingdom are you really living for? He is worthy. We see him as having surpassing worth and value because he is king. Second, he is worthy as our redeemer. Look at verse 6. He is worthy as our redeemer. Between the throne, the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Okay, I want to do a few things here. The first thing I want you to notice is we were just looking at a lion of the tribe of Judah. Now what is he? He's a lamb. So in an instant, this vision of a lion has now become a lamb. And not just any kind of lamb, but Christ who is both lion, he is king, is also a lamb, a lamb who is what? As though he is slain. Here is this king. A lion who is also a lamb. A lamb who's been slaughtered. And what does this lamb look like? We're told that he has seven horns. So we're going to do some good revelation interpretation this morning together. Alright, so you could be envisioning, and perhaps this is what John saw. Literally, a, a, a lamb bleeding with seven horns. And that, that is, but what does it mean? All right, the number seven, what does that symbolize? Perfection, good. So he's perfect. What does a horn symbolize? What do you think? Power, that's it. A horn symbolizes power. So here's a lamb, he's slain, but he is perfect in what? His power. He has seven horns, and he is perfect in his power. Not only does he have seven horns, but he also has seven eyes. So now this, this creature is getting really creepy, right? Seven horns. Seven eyes. Again, what does seven mean? Perfect. What do you think eyes means? That's it. He's all-knowing. 
He is perfect. He's seven horns, perfect in his power, but he is also perfect in what he sees. He is all-knowing. He sees all. There is nothing that escapes his view. The lamb who is slain, perfect in his power, he has conquered sin and death. Perfect in that he knows you better than you know yourself. And there is nothing that escapes his view. And he is a lamb what, that is slain. Why? Because Christ, Jesus Christ, is our Passover lamb. He is our Passover lamb. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming to the waters of Jordan, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John knew it then. He knew. He knew what God was doing. That once we were saved, right, through the exodus, by the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost, now Jesus Christ is our Passover Lamb. He died and He bled once and for all so that you and I would be redeemed forever. He is our Passover Lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. It's what we say in this church every single time that we take communion. Christ our Passover Lamb was sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. He is the Lamb who was slain. Slain for us. So verse 7 says that the Lamb who was slain went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So here is God seated on the throne, holding out the scroll. Christ, the lion and the lamb, takes the scroll from God's hand. He takes it, and as he takes it, everyone, Everyone in this vision. Remember what Chad talked about last week. Who is there? We see it here, verse 8. Twenty-four elders, the four living creatures, they all fall down before Jesus Christ the Lamb. And they say what? Worthy. You, you alone, you are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seal. You were slain, and by your blood, you have ransomed your people. Brothers, we've been ransomed. I want you to think about that word. It's a great word. When you think about what Christ has done for you, He died and He rose again for you. He ransomed you. In other words, He bought you. You were a slave. And He paid your slave's price. He bought you. How did He buy you? With His own blood. First Peter. Talk about this verse actually this Sunday when we worship together. First Peter 1 verse 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
you are ransomed. So the question is, what is Jesus' blood worth to you? What's it worth to you? Because if you don't view yourself as being in that dire need of a Savior, then his blood's not that worth, or it's not worth a whole lot to you, is it? He's not that worthy. But the more that you see that you're, you are in desperate need, because as Paul says in Romans 3, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see that you've been bought with a price. And that price, what you've been paid with, is not this perishable thing such as silver or gold, the way that we would probably count and value worth. No, it is what Peter says, the precious blood of Christ. Okay, last thing. Let's go to our tables. How else is he worthy? Well, he's worthy as our God. He's worthy as our God. Verse 11. Then John says, I looked, I heard around the throne and living creatures, the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. So first you had the 24 elders, the four living creatures. Now you have angels, angels all gathered around, thousands and thousands, and they are all singing with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, God himself and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. They worshiped. When you are in the majesty and presence of God, two things happen. You see how worthless you are, but you are overwhelmed with the surpassing worth of God and Jesus Christ because he is king, because he is your redeemer, because he is God. And it's interesting, the word worship in English, this is where English actually helps us. Does anybody know where the word worship comes from in its etymology? Old English. Think about how it sounds. Worship, worthship. Literally, that's where it comes from. That is the old English version of worship is worthship. To worship something is to behold its worth, its value, to declare it, to acknowledge it, to say this thing that I am worshiping has more worth, more value to me than anything else. So that's, that's very true, isn't it? I mean, the way that we worship all kinds of things. It is certainly true in the way that we think about God. When we worship God, we are declaring that He is worth, He is more valuable than any other thing that we could possibly see. So what does it look like to truly embrace the worthiness of God? I want to end with a parable. And then I want to send you to your tables. And this is Matthew 22. And I want you to actually turn there. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 22. This is where we're going to end this morning. And this is Jesus, and he's telling a parable to help us understand what the worth and value of the kingdom of Jesus Christ looks like. And this is what he says, Matthew 22, verse 2. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, as we continue in the book of Revelation, you'll see why this parable is applicable here. Because we're told that 
at the end of all things, there will be a feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay? So this is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about what Revelation is talking about. A king. He gives a wedding feast for his son. Verse 3. He sent his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. All right, so what, what's the picture? A king who has invited all of these people to this great wedding feast. This great feast, he has invited them to come and attend, and what do they do? That's not worth it to me. That's not worth it to me. I've got stuff to do. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to RSVP to that. I'm not going. Uh, they paid no attention, right? One to his farm, one to his business. So it's not that they're just not going. They're choosing something else rather than to go to the feast. They're counting something else as having more worth than attending this feast. And so we are told that in verse 7, the king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned the city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So what does he do? He invites all kinds of people. Misfits, people would have no business in high society to attend a wedding of this caliber. The most broken people of all broken people. And he calls them and he invites them to the feast. In other words, he says, you, on the side of the road, I'm counting you worthy. You are invited to come to the feast. Brothers, what I want you to see is your worth is not found in your gold, right? Your money, your talent, your abilities, whatever business you've built, where you work, where you live. Your worth is found in the surpassing worth and value of Jesus Christ. That He alone has looked on you because He ransomed you through the blood of His Son. And He now calls you worthy. You are worthy because He is worthy. Let me pray for us. Let's wrestle with this together at our tables. Father, we pray that you would help us again, once again as we recognize our inability to see what John sees. Lord, we recognize that, but I, I do think we can see what um, you're trying to teach him and us this morning. That as we behold your majesty, your greatness, your grandeur, um, if we're honest, we can do nothing else but to fall on our faces and declare that we are not worthy. And so it is out of that humility this morning that we, we come to you and we thank you that though we are unworthy, you sent your son Jesus Christ, a lamb to the slaughter, to ransom us, to buy us back, so that we now would be called worthy and be invited to the feast, to be invited to dine with you, to be in your presence. And we pray, God, that in your surpassing worth, we would find our worth as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.